hppodcraft.com. That night, the Baron dreamt of many a woe, and all his warrior guests with shade and form of witch and demon and large coffin worm were long benightmared. childhood bring only fear and sadness. Wretched is he who looks back upon lone hours in vast and dismal chambers, with brown hangings and maddening rows of antique books, or upon odd watches in twilight groves of grotesque, gigantic, and vine-encumbered trees that silently wave twisted branches far aloft. Such a lot the gods gave to me, to me, the dazed, the disappointed, the barren, the broken. And yet I am strangely content, and cling desperately to those seer memories when my mind momentarily threatens to reach beyond, to the other, the other. The dazed, the disappointed, the barren, the broken. I believe Lovecraft is describing my family at Thanksgiving dinner. (laughs) (laughs) Your family? That's right, my family. Uh, You being? I am Chad Pfeiffer. Chad Pfeiffer, and I'm Chris Lackey, and this is the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast. HPPodcraft.com. And this week's story is the exquisite, the gothic. The outsider. The outsider. Uh, Our reader today is Dennis Calero, an uh, amazing artist who who works over at Marvel now. He uh, released X-Men Noir last year, and I believe there's a follow-up scheduled for release this December, X-Men Noir, Mark of Cain. He's, uh, yeah, it's great. Yeah, well, he illustrated IDW's Dreams in the Witch House, which is from their Masters of Horror line, Dennis. This is a very talented guy. And uh, an excellent reader. Thank you. Yeah. Now, the uh, the quote that the story opens with was read by Rachel Ford, and that's what we opened the podcast. Rachel, yeah, Rachel Ford, friend of the show. Uh, and uh, that quote is from The Eve of St. Agnes, uh, which is a Keats poem. Right. Uh, it was published about 1820. It is a love story. Yeah. St. Agnes is the patron saint of virgins. And on the eve of St. Agnes, if a girl does a couple of things, she's supposed to be able to dream of her husband uh-huh. when she goes to sleep. So if a girl goes to bed without eating, and then she stretches out on her bed completely naked, oh, yeah, looking up to the heavens with her hands under the pillow, when she falls asleep, as I said, she'll dream of her future husband. And in this Keats poem, there's a fellow, Porfiro, who's in love with this girl, Madeline. But they have warring families, and so they can't be together. Kind of a Romeo and Juliet. Sort of God, are the worst. I know. So on the eve of St. Agnes, when everybody's partying in Madeline's family castle, uh, Porfiro basically persuades this old maid to sneak him into her room. Oh, in Madeline's yeah. room. Right, exactly. And oh, he, hides in, he hides in the closet, uh-huh. and he watches her stretch out, you know, on the bed mm-hmm. in her birthday suit. Yeah. It's very erotic. Yeah, I like uh, this. She dreams of him, because he, I guess he will be her future husband and when she wakes he's actually there mm-hmm. he's, he's come out to prepare some food for her and so she thinks this is still the dream she welcomes right. in into her bed and of course when she realizes her mistake she's upset but he says he's got a house for her and they run away together so that, that's basically what that right. story is about so that's a that's about a visit to a castle that goes very well yeah that's not a bad that's not a bad story yeah not so much here. <laughs> no, this doesn't work out at all. So uh, this story begins, uh, I mean, from the opening quote, about a guy who doesn't seem to have a lot, you know, to live for. No, he had a rough childhood. Yeah, not very happy. No. Sad and lonely. I know not where I was born, save that the castle was infinitely old and infinitely horrible, full of dark passages and having high ceilings where the eye could find only cobwebs and shadows. 
The stones in the crumbling corridor seemed always hideously damp, and there was an accursed smell everywhere, as of the piled-up corpses of dead generations. It was never light, so that I used sometimes to light candles and gaze steadily at them for relief, nor was there any sun outdoors since the terrible trees grew high above the topmost accessible tower. There was one black tower which reached above the trees into the unknown outer sky, but that was partly ruined, and could not be ascended save by a well-nigh impossible climb up the sheer wall, stone by stone. Hmm, that's so sad. Yeah. Just staring at a candle flame just for the relief. Just for this relief. Breaks my heart. He's in a dark castle Mm. that's in a dark forest. Yeah, even there is an outdoors, but that's so, there's a tree covering. Yeah, even the canopy is, it blocks out the sun. And he says he must have been in this place for years, but he can't remember. And and he knows that somebody must have cared for him at some point. But his only dim recollection is of of somebody old, shriveled, and decaying like the castle. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So he thinks he must be young. Right, well, he's learned all he knows from the books in this castle. Mm -hmm. A little like the library in the house where H.P., uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh, and in them he sees pictures of people, young people, and he assumes he's like that. Right. As you said, I, you know, since his memory is so short, he must be young. Yeah. But there are no mirrors in this place. No. So, so he doesn't know. He can't know what he looks like, for sure. But he lies out on those grounds, and he dreams about being among people, and, and it's also kind of heartbreaking. It made me think of David Lynch's uh, Elephant Man. All right, yeah. When Merrick is fantasizing about being a gentleman at a party. Right, yeah. That's the only reason. Not because of any hideous deformation or anything. Right, no. No, no, that's the only thing. Because yeah, right. um, this guy is just, you know, he's just a guy that lives in a castle. There's nothing nothing strange about it. Nothing him. strange about it at all, yeah. As far as but except the fact that he lives alone in a castle by right. himself. And, and he tried to escape out into the woods once, but it, but he had it was too dense and fearful. Yeah, and it got dark, so he just went, you know, he went back to the castle. And, and I promise I won't keep bringing up movies like I did last time, but... I do think that movie The Others with Nicole Kidman uh, in a way owes a debt to this because she lives out in that house in the countryside right. that she can't seem to leave. Uh-huh. Every time she walks out, the mists get really heavy and she's got to turn around and come right. back in. Now, I don't want, that, that's because of what you find out at the end of that story. And there's a twist in this story too, so I don't want to give that away. Right. No spoilers here. So through the endless twilights I dreamed and waited, though I knew not what I waited for. Then, in the shadowy solitude, my longing for light grew so frantic that I could rest no more, and I lifted entreating hands to the single black ruined tower that reached above the forest into the unknown outer sky, and at last I resolved to scale that tower, fall though I might, since it were better to glimpse the sky and perish than to live without ever beholding day. Man, that's um, unbelievable, like that this guy, I, such a wretched soul that he... He's never seen the sky. Yeah. Because the trees are so high and they always block it out. And he's hoping that if he goes up to this ruined tower, if he yeah. if he scales the walls because the stairs have, have broken away, they're just falling falling apart. So he's going to scale it. He doesn't care if he dies because he wants to see it. Like he has nothing else to live for. So he does it. He goes for it. He does. He climbs up that tower and he climbs and he climbs past startled bats whose wings make no noise. <laughs> up the broken stairs and then up these small stone footholds. I, I was thinking about, you know, much is made of... Lovecraft's really thick, adjective-laden language. Uh-huh. In fact, we just watched a documentary. Right, yeah. We watched the, um, uh, it's called Fear of the Unknown. Mm-hmm. It just came out on DVD last week, I believe. It's a really good documentary. It's got uh, interviews with Neil Gaiman, with Guillermo del Toro, Ramsey Campbell, you know, it's uh, you know, a lot of interesting insight. Oh, and of course, S.T. Joshi, who yeah. I've never uh, seen before. Mm-hmm. So that was interesting to see, see him, because uh, he writes, you know, pretty much everything. He's that, the expert. Yeah, he's the expert. Wonderfully put together, yeah. uh, but a lot of the interview 
Ease did talk about this language. It's yeah. so thick and dense. But you know, in this story, it feels like it works because it's almost like the sentences constructed are these giant cobwebs that you have to push your way through to get right. to the conclusion. I mean, you're almost like, you're like the outsider swimming through this molasses of language <laughs> trying to figure out what's going on. Right, and I right, think right, it's yeah. really effective. Yeah, I do too. Not much really happens. It's a very, it's it's an incident. It's a very short incident. Uh-huh. It's all about the language and how things are revealed. Yeah, and, and the atmosphere. And the atmosphere, exactly. Well, so finally the, the outsider and us, the reader, we, yeah. we get somewhere. He runs into a kind of a ceiling Mm-hmm. up at the top of the tower and he feels around until he finds a trapdoor leading mm-hmm. up and he believes this probably leads to some kind of observation right. room where he'll be able to look down on the world and see that sky finally yeah. so he climbs through believing I was now at a prodigious height far above the accursed branches of the wood I dragged myself up from the floor and fumbled about for windows that I might look for the first time upon the sky and the moon and the stars of which I had read but on every hand I was disappointed since all that I found were vast shelves of marble bearing odious oblong boxes of disturbing size. Hmm. Strange observation tower. Yeah. Seems a little like a mausoleum. Could be. Could Maybe. be like a mausoleum. I don't know. He finds another door, and with a burst of strength, he rushes through, and he finally sees the full moon through this grating of iron. He's thrilled. He's never seen it before. Right. He's read about it. Uh-huh. And, and then the moon passes beyond some clouds. It's obscured for a moment as he feels for the grating. Uh-huh. Uh, which he finds unlocked. But he doesn't push it open because he's afraid if I push this open, I might fall right, yeah. right off of this tower. Then the moon comes out. Most demoniacal of all shocks is that of the abysmally unexpected and grotesquely unbelievable. Nothing I had before undergone could compare in terror with what I now saw, with the bizarre marvels that sight implied. The sight itself was as simple as it was stupefying. For it was merely this, instead of a dizzying prospect of treetops seen from a lofty eminence, there stretched around me, on a level, through the grating, nothing less than the solid ground, decked and diversified by marble slabs and columns, and overshadowed by an ancient stone church, whose ruined spire gleamed spectrally in the moonlight. Hmm. He's, he's not up high at no. all. He is, he is no, he's on the ground. So what happened? What it's crazy. He's he's in some kind of cemetery. The the castle was underground yes. somehow. Yeah. This sensation actually. Have you ever done this where you're walking up some stairs and maybe it's dark, uh-huh. and so you don't actually know where the stairs stop. Oh right. So you have that weird moment where you try to step on another stair yeah, and then your foot there. plunges down on the ground yeah. and you oh, just yeah. kind of feel stupid. <laughs> yeah. That's Absolutely. a demoniacal shock. Uh, so our narrator creeps through these old meadows out in this world mm-hmm. that he's discovered. There's nobody around. No. He swims across this river, and it's like he's got some latent memory. Yeah, it's familiar to him. Yeah. Uh, he goes for, for two hours, wanders around, yeah. until he gets to another castle. Um, and I, I thought it was really funny that he put the actual like travel time in there. <laughs> like, if you ran into somebody at the cemetery, you'd be like, where's that castle? Oh, it's over that way, about two hours worth of creeping. <laughs> <laughs> Hour and a half if you lurk. <laughs> uh, anyway, he gets to this castle, which he says is maddeningly familiar yet full of strangeness. Yeah, yeah. It's. Uh, I think he mentions that the that the moat was filled in. Yeah, yeah. It's like I, somehow he knew that previously this castle had a moat, but now it doesn't. Right. I, I imagine that it's somewhat like when you go visit a school that you attended when you were young. Right. Everything's the same, but it all feels different. It feels There's different. There's an addition on here, and the rooms are small. But how can... This is one of the things that is puzzling to, to the character, as, as to the reader. 
if he's spent his whole life in that castle, how, how is this familiar to it? I don't know. Strange. Yeah. Well, one thing that's definitely different about this castle than about the one he just emerged from is that there are people in this castle. Yeah, not just people, but revelers. Yeah, there's lights and the sounds of a party coming from the windows. So he creeps to a full stop at one of the windows, and uh, he looks in. Mm-hmm. He's never heard speech before, so he's not sure what everybody's laughing about in there. Right. Uh, probably they're all making fun of the quest of Irnan, is what I <laughs> But... Uh, um, <laughs> He says some of their faces even bring up these remote recollections. What does that mean? I don't know. He's never seen, you know, he's been in this castle his whole life. Uh, Like, how how does... Well, he decides to crash the party. Right. Literally. I now step through the low window into the brilliantly lighted room, stepping as I did so from my single bright moment of hope to my blackest convulsion of despair and realization. The nightmare was quick to come, for as I entered... There occurred immediately one of the most terrifying demonstrations I had ever conceived. Scarcely had I crossed the sill when there descended upon the whole company a sudden and unhelded fear of hideous intensity, distorting every face and evoking the most horrible screams from nearly every throat. Flight was universal, and in the clamor and panic, several fell in a swoon and were dragged away by their madly fleeing companions. Many covered their eyes with their hands plunged blindly and awkwardly in their race to escape, overturning furniture and stumbling against the walls before they managed to reach one of the many doors. Of course, he thinks, my God, somebody must be really freaking these folks yeah, out. this is crazy. What's going on? What, yeah. what, is, what is so horrific? The, the character in the story obviously doesn't realize what's going on. Right. I think the reader at this point... It's kind of obvious. It's kind of obvious. He's, he's the one that's freaking everybody out, but he doesn't realize that. And in fact, his, yeah, his ignorance is a little funny when he's like, there must be some monstrosity in the room <laughs> that changed a merry company to a herd of delirious fugitives. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it, On the forums, they were laughing about that phrase, delirious fugitives. You know, what does that look like? <laughs> what does that look like? It's yeah. pretty good. The... Sounds like the name of a bad improv group. So yeah, so he everybody's freaking out. He doesn't understand mm-hmm. what's going on, but then he sees that there's a figure over in an alcove. Yeah, he, he sees it through an archway. It's so horrible that it makes him utter his first, and he says his last sound, a ghastly and revolting ululation. Another <laughs> great Lovecraft word. I cannot even hint what it was like, for it was a compound of all that is unclean, uncanny, unwelcome, abnormal, and detestable. It was the ghoulish shade of decay, antiquity, and desolation the putrid, dripping eidolon of unwholesome revelation, the awful bearing of that which the merciful earth should always hide. God knows it was not of this world, or no longer of this world, yet to my horror I saw in its eaten away and bone-revealing outlines a leering, abhorrent travesty on the human shape, and in its multi-disintegrating apparel an unspeakable quality that chilled me even more. He wants to flee like everybody else. This thing is terrified. He's so bewitched. He's in the state of confusion. Yeah, he doesn't know what's going on. So he throws his hand up to shut out the sight, and uh-huh. this makes him kind of tumble forward for a moment, getting even closer, yeah, to, this closer to this creature. creature. So he throws up his hand again to ward it off, but by accident, his hand touches the rotting, outstretched paw of yeah. this monster. And at that moment, everything suddenly becomes clear. He remembers everything, and uh-huh. he flees off into the night. The, uh-huh. the trap door in the mausoleum, unfortunately, is closed to him when he gets back, but he doesn't care because he hated it down at the castle. Right. Now I ride with the mocking and friendly ghouls on the night wind, and play by day amongst the catacombs of Nefren Ka, in the sealed and unknown valley of Hadoth by the Nile. In my new wildness and freedom, I almost welcome the bitterness of alienage. He says the cosmos offers bitterness, but also a balm, which is Nepenthe. 
Yeah. Uh, Nepenthe is like an ancient opiate. Right. Uh, basically, it was mentioned in the Odyssey. Uh, I think Poe mentions it in The Raven. It's mm-hmm. literally a drug that chases away sorrow. Mm-hmm. Here, I think he just means the ability to forget sorrow and pain. Yeah, but it says that he's, he's hanging out with ghouls. Now, is this... Uh, I don't know. Is this an actual... I mean, is it literally like the creature ghouls that will appear later in the uh, the uh, uh, quest of unknown uh, Kadai? The dream quest? I, I hope so. I mean, yeah. I hope he's hanging out with somebody. Although, I love that he's such a rebel at that point. He's like, I almost welcome the bitterness of alienage. <laughs> Very cool. But what is it? What's I mean, like, everything has become clear to him, but we're not still... Not to us, yeah. Not to us, not to the reader. Well, he says, uh, For although Nepenthe has calmed me, I know always that I am an outsider, a stranger in this century and among those who are still men. This I have known ever since I stretched out my fingers to the abomination within that great gilded frame, stretched out my fingers and touched a cold and unyielding surface of polished glass. The monster, my friend, is him. No! Yeah. And that's the end of the story. It is. You know, you see it coming, but that last italicized line—it's—it's it's chilling. I, I it like is. it. Yeah, it's just really neat. And I mean, a lot of the notes and the scholars have said that this is somewhat derivative of a few different, of a lot of things. Of a lot of things. You know, specifically Frankenstein, um, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, where the monster tries to go into the party, yeah, and, or the, the house, and the kids scream, and, right. and you know all that stuff. And also, there is uh, Nathaniel Hawthorne's fragments from the Journal of a Solitary Man, where there's a guy like in his his uh, his death robes, and he's walking uh, down a major street, and people are you know shrieking when they see him. And yeah, stuff. and then he sees himself in a store window and, and realizes what they're freaking. Yeah, out they're about. freaking out that it's, that it's him. So, I mean, it's not uh, not an original idea by any stretch of the imagination. Yeah, you're right. You're right. The, the, the beholding yourself and realizing that you're the monster, is, is, it's been done. Yeah. But, well, you know, some of the critics of the story, too, they say it doesn't really make a hell of a lot of sense. I mean, yeah. what is this castle he's in? But I, it, made, it made perfect sense it's to perfect me. sense to yeah, me. Yeah, he, he, when he says that the castle that he goes to is familiar, the moat's mo- mo- built in, yeah. that's his castle. Yeah, he used to live there. He's the dead ancestor of these people. Yeah. And he was buried in the mausoleum, and then he came back from the dead, and mm-hmm. he's half remembering his life, yeah. uh, which was probably not that good of a life anyway. Right. So he's half remembering his life, trying to return back to his castle and finding out that. And know, in his young, you know, newly dead brain, I mean, all he's just got those dim recollections of what his life was before. So to him, that emerging is, you know, he just imagines it as being in this castle. Right. All of. That's all that his brain has to, to explain his setting to him. I mean, right. otherwise he's just in complete blackness down there because he's dead. Right. I, I it's to me I, it seems really clear. It seems pretty obvious to me. I mean, and maybe maybe we're wrong. Maybe we're missing something here. But uh, and and, and uh, people on the forums, if yeah. you want to contribute to this, uh, please do. I and, mean, sometimes I have dreams where I'm in the house I grew up in. Oh, of course. Yeah, and, yeah, but yeah, something's yeah. a little different, and yeah. then I wake up and. It's a little unsettling. All right, I've had dreams where I I'm in Pittsburgh, but it's also the Quad Cities, you know, because I'm yeah. in Pittsburgh. Where it's kind of a mix of the two. Right, right? Uh, my memories get jumbled together, and mm-hmm. and obviously I think that's what you know Lovecraft's trying to communicate with with the yeah. story. Now this story was written probably they don't know exactly when it was written, uh, March or August of uh, 1921, which is after his mother's death. Mm. So that could have brought up a lot of these feelings. His mother. Uh, often said that he was ugly and hideous yeah. and would want him to hide away from people and things yeah. like that. 
So and he did hide himself away yeah, from people yeah, for long periods of time. Some people say that this is somewhat autobiographical, and mm-hmm. in a way, I can I can totally see that. Sure, and it's really touching. I mean, who hasn't felt that way? At some Absolutely. Point and uh, even another. A second thing that's actually divorced from that metaphorically that I really love right. is he climbs out of that castle. I mean, it really takes serious will and right. effort. He makes that climb and he gets to the top of the tower. And when he gets up there, there's another f***ing castle. It's like in life, you struggle and you finally attain something. And then there's just a whole new struggle right, ahead of you. Struggle, yeah. It never goes away. Right, I remember, well, in the story, when he finally gets up to the top, he like rests. Mm-hmm. Like he gets up there and he's just so exhausted from the climb that yeah. he has to, t- to like take a break. Which is strange because, you know, he's dead. So I don't know if... Some nerds have been talking that mm-hmm. specifically that maybe he's he is a ghoul, you know, mm. like he's not actually a, like a zombie or, or you know, mm. like that he somehow metamorphoses into some other kind of creature. But I'm um, in his description. I think he sounds like a like a You're zombie. Like to a me, I, I can't stop with the movie things, but I think of him as that one zombie in Return of the Living Dead. Oh right, yeah, he's yeah, covered yeah. in the black, the black icker and icker. yeah, that's the. But it kind of lends this humanity to some, you know, zombie movies are out there every weekend. We're very familiar with that now. But it lends this really interesting kind of perspective to well, what's going on in the brain of these things as they emerge from the earth, you know? Yeah. And I personally, I don't care whether he's a zombie or a ghoul because to me the story matter. is about the discovery. Yeah, I mean, I think everybody at some point in their life has been in situations where they thought things were a certain way and then got a cold slap in the face. Mm-hmm. Hey, you're wrong, pal. You're, what you're doing isn't right. You're off base. Well, so you're very familiar with this, but the <laughs> listeners probably aren't. And it's not quite analogous to the story, yet I still think of it. When I was a kid, you know, in the early 80s, I loved Michael Jackson. I mean, to me, there was Star Wars and the video for Thriller, and that was like it. Uh-huh. And I was a bookish kid. I didn't have a lot of friends. Surprise, surprise. But um, we were going back to school shopping with my mother, and they had this whole rack of Beat It jackets at the Target or Venture. I don't remember right. what it was. I was like, Mom, I got to have this jacket. You know, I want to look like MJ. If I get this jacket, I'll be cool. Uh-huh. And it was like $40, which was very expensive for our budget. I begged her and begged her, and she finally got it for me. I brought it home, and I had a little sequin glove that I put in one of the pockets in case I needed to bust it out right. later. You know, yeah, uh-huh. Hung in the closet. And I mean, the night before, I thought, man, this is I've arrived on the yeah. social scene. When yeah. I show up with this thing, man, I'm going to be moonwalking my way into you know the hearts of all of the, your peers yeah exactly so the day came and i i put the jacket on and my mom drove me to the playground and uh i walked out and it took you know 15 30 seconds for somebody to turn around and be like look at what pfeiffer's wearing you know and then all of these other kids turned and looked at me and it was it was sort of like on the playground when there's a fight and suddenly everybody just scrambles to surround it to yeah. look that was me i was in the middle of that <laughs> i mean everybody turned and was like oh my god and they all ran over and i was suddenly in the middle of this mob of people uh-huh. just laughing at me in this jacket i was horrified so i ran away uh-huh. you know and my mother hadn't quite left a lot i ran after a car and I jumped in and she took me home and I was crying and I changed my jacket uh-huh. and she took me back to school and I made it just before, you know, everybody was lining up to go in. We're like, why are you wearing a different jacket, Pfeiffer? <laughs> I was like, oh, that's just my morning jacket. <laughs> or I don't know what I said. Terrible. But that was definitely my outsider moment. Terrible. As a kid. I mean, you had things like yeah, that, Yeah, right? well, you learn. I mean, I think that maybe that was one of your experiences where you just kind of learn to pay attention to what people are thinking. Like, yeah. I remember when I was a kid, like, my, I guess, similar outsider experience was, I was pretty young. There were some kids that were two or three years older than me on our street, and they were playing, like, with the army guys in a sandbox. Mm-hmm. And 
I, you know, I showed up and I'm like, hey, what are you guys doing? And they're like, oh, we're playing army guys. I'm like, oh, cool. I love army guys. You know, little green army men and stuff. Yeah. So, you know, I'm thinking, hey, this is cool. Everybody's having fun. This is, you know, a great time. And then one of the kids is like, oh, is that your mom calling? And I said, and I said, no, I, I didn't. I didn't hear it. I'm like, yeah, no, your mom's calling you, man. You better get home. And I'm like, oh, okay. So I get home. I, you know, I, I totally believe him. I go home. I find my mom. I'm going, hey, what would you call? And she's like, I didn't, I didn't call. And I'm like, what? And then it. Yeah. It, you had that mirror moment. Yeah. I had that mirror moment. Like, oh no, we weren't all having fun. I was the annoying little kid. Yeah. They didn't want to hang out with me. That was. And that's one of the training points in life where now you have to be careful. You have to be paying mm -hmm. attention to what people are doing and, and how they're reacting to you. Yeah. And, you know, adjust your behavior accordingly. And you'd say you learned from that experience. I learned from that experience. I didn't because that, like, <laughs> two, it was like two years ago I was living in uh, Hollywood. And um, one weekend night I was by myself and I was lonely just like this guy. Uh -huh. This poor zombie. And... Um, my wife was doing a show or something, so I was home all alone. And across the street, there was a raging party going on. Mm -hmm. um, and there's some younger you know, actors and things that live over there. And I thought, you know, I've passing met these folks, and I do live right across the street, so I'm just going to go to their party. So I walked across the street, I went in. They let me in, Yeah. but they looked at me strangely. And uh -huh. then I was just kind of, want I didn't know anybody, and I was wandering around room to room. Everybody there was like 10 years younger than me. <laughs> And I suddenly had that realization. You're the creep. I'm the creepy old guy who shows up at the party who nobody knows. You right? Know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Dude, that's a that is a pretty applicable uh, yeah. outsider experience. I know. Well, I ran off into the night and hung out with ghouls after that too. Oh yeah. I'm that guy. You're oh, that, that guy. So yeah, there's. I mean, there's a lot to be said to that, and and there is there's a pathos that. That's in the story that I don't get in a lot of Lovecraft story. I feel a really strong empathy for this character, and I care, even mm -hmm. though he's the monster, and that's cool. What did uh, Lovecraft himself think of this? Actually, he wrote about it in a in a letter. Uh, this is in 1931, so this is about uh, ten years after he wrote. Uh, yeah, about ten years after he he wrote it, and this is what he says: "To my mind, this tale is too glibly mechanical in its climactic effect, and almost comic in the bombastic pomposity in its language." As I reread it, I can hardly understand how I could have let myself be tangled up in such baroque and windy rhetoric as recently as 10 years ago. It represents my literal, though unconscious, imitation of Poe at its very height. So even he yeah. thought the language was too dead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. See, but he used that word, tangled. That's what I said. I yeah. mean, it feels like you're getting tangled up in these webs. But I think it's cool, you know? And I, I think he was a little hard on himself. But it is definitely uh, really Poe. Yeah, <laughs> like sure. you know, Mask of the Red Death. Early on in the podcast, I remember saying, you know, Ken Height's book where he was talking about mm, the, tomb. Know, the, the tomb and how it's so Poe-ish. And I'm like, yeah, it's kind of Poe, but it, yeah. and, you know, Ken's right. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> it's really Poe. Even, you know, buzzwords <laughs> that he uses in language and, you know, the it, Nepenthe thing. Yeah, I, I just yeah, I just love Lovecraft. And, and yeah. I think that looking back now, you know, this is our... 21st mm -hmm. podcast i'm getting a much better picture of lovecraft and and his yeah. work and i'm excited as we keep progressing into his later stuff definitely uh soon he's going to be married and moved to new york and that's going to be a big change for lovecraft and i'm curious in his writing to see how that's going to be reflected certainly we know some things were affected by that right. or at red hook that sort of thing yeah, but exactly. uh i you know it's great to read that quote and tell that 10 years later he'd really developed as a writer and started to understand maybe i'm maybe i'm using too many words <laughs> well yeah i mean and that's 
you know, part of the evolution of, of, of his work and hopefully the evolution of the show, too, that mm-hmm. we're going to, you know... Hopefully we'll use fewer words. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I want to remind everybody that all of these stories are free yeah. to be read um, from hplovecraft.com. Yeah. It's a great website. It's a really great website. And again, I've heard somebody saying they had to go buy it. I mean, books are great to have, so buy it. It's a fun way to read one of these. I read uh, Reanimator uh, recently under a tree out in the park, and it was like Aww. a great way to read it, you know. Yeah. Uh, but they are available for free online. Um, so, folks, uh, thanks. We've, we've gotten uh, some uh, donations, and we want to want to thank everybody out there that's helping us uh, and, you know, helping us with the cost of the show because yeah. there are some costs. And uh, we can still use more, so please, um, up until the end of the year, we are offering, uh, with a $20 donation or more, a copy of the soundtrack to this podcast. Yep, it's uh, it's uh, music that we, all original music from the first uh, 19 or 20 episodes. Yep. Um, and hey, don't just believe us. I mean, just ask Andrew Lehman. If you're like me, and I know I am, I listen to HP Podcraft each and every week. Chris and Chad bring me literally moments of entertainment on a weekly basis and I feel it's my duty to contribute to their ongoing efforts you know bandwidth isn't free so yeah there you go there you go it's been laid out for you that's what you get I would also ask people to visit our site hppodcraft.com and, and dig it oh right yeah uh, we were, we're, we're trying to get some digs get some stumble upon I stumble think upon, the popular one now get yeah. some uh, some uh, It'll be in our show notes, yeah. some links that you can go to. And We want to share the magic, man. Yeah, people, people should get to know Lovecraft. Well, that's all I've got. That's all I've got. Next week, uh, The Other Gods will be the story. So go ahead and give that a read before you listen to the podcast yeah, so you excellent. can be in on it. And uh, once more, I want to thank our reader today, Dennis Calero. Yeah, Dennis, thank you so much. A great job. Happy Thanksgiving, everybody. Happy Thanksgiving, yes. And we will see you next week. I'm Chris Lackey. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. And this has been the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast. HPPodcraft.com. hppodcraft.com.